A'udhu Billah Minash Shaitan Ar-Rajeem Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad And the purified members of his household and progeny Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum Brothers, sisters, respected viewers Assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh So Welcome once again to our life series where we are discussing now the attributes of the teacher, the characteristics of the teacher or the scholar in Islam as part of our general discussion of seeking knowledge after we completed the discussion on the ingredients of effective learning and the effective learner in Islam. So I will not go through a full recap, maybe just the highlights of what we have covered for the teacher, and then we continue. So after a quick discussion of who the teacher or the scholar is in the perfect sense in our religion, that person being the infallible or the divine guide or the person that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala appoints as a teacher, appoints as a scholar and a source of religion and a source of knowledge, we started discussing the characteristics and the duties of the scholar and the teacher. And we said that the reason we combine both together is that, in truth, the moment we start acquiring knowledge, that knowledge comes with a responsibility. The moment you start acquitting yourself of that responsibility, of acting based on that responsibility, the more you are a scholar. You are meeting your duties as a scholar. Those things go hand in hand. Which means that the moment you start seeking knowledge, that knowledge, as little as it may be when you begin, is already coming with an amount of duty, an amount of responsibility towards yourself and towards others as we are starting to see, inshallah. And so when we talk about the characteristics of the teacher, we're looking for the person at the same time who is acquitting themselves of their duties, of their responsibilities. So in fact, we're doing two things at the same time. We're studying what are the responsibilities and duties of the scholar and the teacher, and we are studying the characteristics of the teacher and the scholar. And we said that uh, a very fundamental point for this in practical ethical terms for us is that we cannot look at this discussion, that whole area of study, as only serving us, as only helping us to assess outwardly, to look only at that other person that we're considering as a source of knowledge, as a teacher and as a scholar. This has to become a set of criteria that we try to apply ourselves for ourselves. Now that we are on this path, that we are learning, it means that I have to look at each one of these characteristics, each one of these traits to see, am I living in a way that matches, that aligns with these characteristics and therefore these duties or not? So before I look outwardly, before I look at others to see how much do I think that they are meeting their duties now that they carry knowledge and how much of a scholar they are based on the characteristics we're studying, I have to look at myself and see, 
to what extent am I meeting the, these characteristics and to what extent am I actually acquitting myself of these duties and these responsibilities. So inshallah, this was a an introductory remark, but that we keep in mind as we move through these. We looked at, in our initial discussions, we looked at two or three narrations from Imam Ali alayhi salam that are a little bit deeper and uh, um, that provide more insight than our typical narrations, the much shorter narrations. One of them, both actually are in Nahj al-Balagha, but one of them in which he's addressing Kumail, his faithful companion, and the other one uh, as part of a uh, general sermon or even the discussion that we had later on the letter attributed to Imam Ali alayhi salam in which he is uh, talking directly to his son. And from these, we were already able to identify a number of characteristics that are to be avoided and a number of characteristics that are to be uh, met and observed. From those that need to be avoided, we found lack of spirituality, the contradictory talk or action that do not match what we say, those who seem to use religion as an instrument for something else than what it really is. And really here we're talking about worldly gains. And these can take all sorts of shapes. We saw quite a few of them. And we're going to spend a bit more time on that in the future as well. To avoid those who, not as a person, but as a, as a source of knowledge or as a teacher, those who seem to lack depth of understanding, that they only seem to have a superficial understanding of religion or of reality. Because as the imam was referring to them, he was saying those are people who, while on one side there is not an ounce of good judgment or wisdom between their sides, as he says, on the other side these are people in whom uh, the doubts spark very quickly. right? Because they lack that insight, when they are confronted with something that they see for the first time or that is presented to them in a way that fills them with doubts, they're unable to rely on a deeper knowledge and understanding to get rid of those doubts and those that questioning. Those who lack self-restraint or who have, who have a low level of self-restraint, of spiritual discipline, we already mentioned it, who seem to be excessively interested in material gains and who lack the ability to teach and so we said that includes your ability to understand and use logic, to know how to communicate, and to be convincing to the right audience in the right way, and so on and so forth. On the other side, the desirable characteristics. We're looking for spiritual discipline, an ability to guide, to ourselves be people who have a firm belief and a firm faith so that we can then become a source of stability of the faith and religion of others and as opposed to becoming a source of doubts and constant questioning for others. Uh, we're looking for those who lead by action, who lead by example, those who seem to be concerned with the afterlife, with death and the afterlife. And as we said, this one might be very difficult to judge from, from where I'm sitting to judge someone else. Um, the sources of knowledge, and we spent a little bit of time on that, 
What are the sources of knowledge that this person relies on? What are they feeding me? Where is that information coming from? Where are these theories coming from? Is it what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to communicate to humanity through the Holy Quran, through his divine guides? Or is it this person's own theories? Or even worse, is it coming from all sorts of other sources that are repackaged as being Islamic theory and Islamic knowledge? And we spoke about the topic of loyalty or guardianship. You know, someone who is a custodian over the knowledge that they carry. Do they know how to care for that knowledge? Do they honor the knowledge that they're carrying? And the main criteria the Holy Prophet mentioned in a few of the hadith is someone who has not entered full-heartedly into this world and has not become a servant or a slave to the rulers, right? That's how it was uh, presented to us. That's that's a criteria that was given to us. And we're going to come back to a little bit more detail around this, perhaps not today, but inshallah, either next lecture or the one after that, when we're talking about the characteristics of the scholar. But definitely there is a social dimension uh, to the role of the scholar and the presence of scholar in uh, society. We spoke about the relationship of the scholar with knowledge, that this is someone who is humble, who has modesty towards knowledge. They don't feel like they know everything about it. They don't feel like uh, they uh, are too great or knowledgeable or uh, they are uh, you know, too elevated in their knowledge or whatever it may be, their status, their rank, that they can't be taught or that they can't be given advice. Okay, So that, not, that modesty or humility towards knowledge itself, which is a different topic than having modesty or humility towards people in general. Okay, And on the other side, we want someone who never tires and who constantly craves, who is always more hungry for more knowledge. Um. We also spoke about, we spent enough time on this, so not going through it, but the seven categories of the scholars that were mentioned that match the seven depths of hell and the reasons why they are dangerous or they are uh, a curse for themselves, but a curse for the people who they are supposed to be uh, serving. So inshallah, today we continue based on everything we've covered. The last time we met specifically, we spoke about a topic that is, as we said, uh, a lot more subtle or a lot more nuanced and we don't have time to delve deeper into it. Uh, but I think what we have covered in it, inshallah, is sufficient. And that is to re-emphasize or, or clarify even further some of the points we mentioned, especially with regards to the sources of knowledge on one side and on the other side, your ability to guide. And a specific instance of that that we wanted to look at, and that's what we spent time doing the last time, is how we saw a number of our imams, especially the later imams, when they started talking about the role of scholars during the time of occultation, when we don't have access to the imam, starting with the hadith, with the narration between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Musa alayhi salam, and the type of criteria that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving to Prophet Musa alayhi salam to bring people back to him to find those who are lost souls, the stubborn sinners and bring them back to the gate, the door, the entrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in there 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also mentioned as one of the criteria, therefore one of the duties, one of the roles of the scholar is to make them see who their leader is at any given time. Who is your ultimate authority at any given time? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala referred to this person as their imam, right, in that narration. And then we looked at the, the narrations that came to us from the a number of imams, Imam al-Sadiq, Imam al-Hadi, Imam al-Askari, Imam al-Jawad, in which they were saying that the scholars who will come at the end of times are the ones who are going to know where the attacks are coming from that are going to weaken the faith, the belief of those who are supposed to be our followers. So on one side, we know that they have to be people who are performing this duty. You can have all the knowledge in the world. If you are not performing the duty of defending the faith and the belief, the values, the principles that these followers of Ahlul Bayt are supposed to believe in and are supposed to observe, then that knowledge is not leading to making you a scholar. You have to be performing that role. The way the Imam described it, if you will remember the hadith, he said it's as though they are sitting on the borders, on the frontiers where the attacks are coming from. This is They are on the front lines. They understand where the attacks are coming from, and this is the second part, the second dimension of these ahadith. That one, that they have to be people who are actually performing this duty, not waiting for others to perform it while they're sitting back, right? With everything that that entails. That's one. Two, they have to know where the attacks are coming from. This is a different type of knowledge. This is not knowledge in theory. It's not that I have this vast amount of knowledge. Do I know how to apply it to everyday life in order to identify where the attack is coming from? What the issue actually is that people need knowledge about, that people need guidance about. There is a time to talk about certain topics because it's appropriate and relevant and needed. And there's a time where this is not what's most needed. Something else is more needed, most more important. You have to have the ability to identify where is the attack coming from? What type of attack is it? And then push it back. Do you have the tools to push back on these attacks? And this in itself requires different types of expertise, right? You can, as we said, you can have all the knowledge in the world. If you don't know how to apply it to the current situation, it may be completely useless. You're spending energy and time, if you are performing that duty, in things that may be trivial at this time. They be superfluous. This is not what's needed at this time. And so this gives us an indication of a number of characteristics of what is expected of these teachers, of these scholars, true, but also for us. That this is the role we have to play. And, and a lot of these ahadith, in fact all of them, and that's why we chose them, there was a safety net. As difficult as things may get, as confusing, ambiguous as things may get, there's always a constant criteria in all of these ahadith. That ultimately you may doubt a lot of things. You may have questions about a lot of things. But in all of these ahadith, the safety net, the constant is that it leads back to Ahlul Bayt. If you can get that, then at least you know that the details may be questionable. But the general direction is clear. That this is always leading back to the method, the school, the principles, the beliefs that Ahlul Bayt stood for, which we believe are Islam. This is the version of Islam that the Holy Prophet ﷺ left behind. 
and they safeguarded it. We're looking for those who bring us back to that. So that no matter what else happens, how much ambiguity and questioning and doubts there may be, we are brought back to the version of Islam that the Holy Prophet left in this world. Okay? So inshallah, that all of that is clear. There's a lot more that we can say about all of this. But inshallah, the, the, the point, the main points that we tried to cover are well understood. So it gives us an idea in general of Yes, the expertise, yes, the amount of knowledge, but more specifically, how this person is able to apply that knowledge at every given time. Because today the attack is going to be different than it will be tomorrow or it was 500 years ago or it will be in 1,000 years. We're looking for that person who is able to reinterpret religion in that manner and know how to deal with these attacks in this way, in this uh, effective way or in this competent way we'll start today with the next hadith in the in the series with a hadith from Prophet Jesus السلام, this one that I thought was going to bring together a lot of the points that we already discussed okay so in in a way it does do a recap for us by addressing a lot of these themes that we talked about one of them that will be very clear is going to be this idea, and we're going to expand it a lot more, this idea of worldliness versus the afterlife. How much of a priority do you give to this world versus the next world? So this has an application. This is valid in general for anyone who believes in God and who believes in an afterlife. We have to live lives that reflect our belief that death is inevitable, we are all going to die, and then after death, there is an entire existence. And in fact, it's not only that there is an existence just like this existence of ours in this world, it's that this world in quantity and quality pales in comparison to what is waiting for us in the afterlife. To put numbers, we would say, let's say it represents 1% of, or 1 in a 1,000 of, or one in a million of. And in fact, when you go through the Holy Quran and the verses, when they talk about an eternal existence or centuries upon centuries, or then this is not an exaggeration on our part when we say that. And of course, so this is only in quantity. And in quality, in intensity of the experience, if you read very carefully the, the descriptions of heaven and hell, for instance, clearly the existence of that afterlife is much more intense in, what, in terms of what we experience than what we experience in this world. So someone who has belief, a basic belief in the idea that there is a death and an after-death, an afterlife, a hereafter, you have to live your life by keeping this in mind. This has to show in the manner you conduct yourself in this world. If everything you do here has a repercussion there, times 100 or 1,000 or 1 million, you can't live your life exactly the same way as someone who does not have that belief. That's illogical. So what are you doing and how are you living your life? This is someone who has a basic belief. If someone has knowledge, the type of knowledge we're talking about, then this has to show even more. If knowledge is not leading to this, then what it is leading, what is it leading to? 
How is that true knowledge? How is this the knowledge that God wants from you if it does not show in the manner in which you deal with afterlife? And so this becomes a huge criteria. And for us to apply, as I'm gaining knowledge, constantly asking myself, assessing myself, evaluating myself, as I'm gaining this knowledge, what is it really doing to me? Am I closer to God? Do I think about my afterlife more? Do I prepare for the afterlife more? Or am I simply accumulating information? You know, now I understand all the different schools of Kalam. Now I understand the intricacies of, you know, Islamic history. Now I understand the layers of, you know, the, the history and the schools of thought between mysticism and philosophy and, and so on and so forth. If this is leading to a closer understanding of the Qur'an, getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, thinking about the afterlife more, great. This is what we're looking for. If not, and we're simply just accumulating information, and information that may give me better status, better money, better reputation, whatever it may be in this world, but it's not actually leading to anything in the afterlife that I can all alone with myself tell myself, then there's something lacking. This is not the knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us to go and acquire. Okay, so this is where we're headed in the hadith, and inshallah this is going to be very clear, starting with this first one. So as we usually do, we introduce the topic, and then we drill down a little bit further and further into it as we go along. So here we're only talking, as we said, about a hadith that provides general traits. But as we have come to realize when we go through the a hadith especially of Prophet Isa alayhi salam, you'll always see a lot of metaphors, metaphorical, allegorical language, and that makes for much deeper way of understanding things. He doesn't spell things out to you. So he leaves it to your ability to go as far as your mind can go in understanding what he says. You'll also notice a second theme. This is the theme of the lack of spirituality. So, there are people who have knowledge, but they lack spirituality. There are people who have knowledge, but they lack spiritual discipline. Right? No one said this is easy. It's simple. As in, it's easy to tell what is right and wrong. It doesn't mean that it's easy in the sense that everyone's going to do it. Everyone knows junk food is bad. But there are those who eat it because they don't have the discipline, and those who don't because they have the discipline. It's not only that I know it's how much discipline do I have to live by what I know, right? That's two. And then the third layer is that knowledge, and I don't want to spend time on this, but you will see it come again and again in the hadith. We spend a lot of time on the topic of action and sincerity. We said that knowledge must lead to action, and we had a whole series of lectures on that theme. And knowledge must be acquired with the right intent, with the right intentions, and the highest form of that intent is sincerity, is ikhlas. So we spent a whole a series of lectures on those two. So I don't want to spend more time on it, but you will see that they're going to come back again and again, confirming what we said earlier in the series. And so here we're definitely going to see a little bit of that as a first hadith. So in this hadith, Masih alayhi salam, he says, it's a longer hadith, I'm taking the parts that are important so clearly al-masih salam just quick context masih salam prophet jesus when he came the one of the biggest issues he was dealing with were these people who were supposed to be 
knowledgeable scholars. But they had distorted the religion for their own gains, for their own worldly gains. So there are times when you will see when he talks to the masses, to the people, he doesn't talk with the same harshness as he does when he talks with those people who are supposed to be the scholars. They are the ones who are leading people astray. They are the ones who are bringing religion to somewhere where it's not supposed to go. And people follow them. So their influence is much greater. And so this is one of these ahadith clearly where Prophet Isa is not talking to the masses here. He's talking to the people who are supposed to be the scholars, the experts, especially of the Old Testament, right? When he says to the masses, he tells them, I came to continue and to apply and to rectify what was in the Old Testament, in the Sharia, in the law of Prophet Musa I'm a continuation of that. So he talks to them as being the experts in that. So what does he say? So at some point in his speech, he says, وَلَا تَعْمَلُونَ لِلْآخِرَةِ تَعْمَلُونَ لِلْدُّنْيَا وَلَا تَعْمَلُونَ لِلْآخِرَةِ وَأَنْتُمْ لَا تُرْزَقُونَ فِيهَا إِلَّا بِالْعَمَلِ So a first criteria. So now, inshallah, with everything we've said, I don't need to explain. I'll just refer to the points. As a first point, he says, you strive for this world and you do not strive for the afterlife. Yet, you will get nothing in the afterlife unless you work for it. By opposition to this world. You, we get a lot of things in this world without even working for them. Not everything that we do in this world is because we did it. Proof? When you're a baby, are you working hard for the sustenance that comes your way? No. This is a sustenance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala engineers in this world to bring to you. Right? The afterlife is not like that. You get nothing without the work. You get nothing without what you strive for. The harder you work for it, the more you get. In this world, that's not the case. Sometimes you work really hard and you get an equivalent amount of reward for what you put in. And sometimes you work really hard and you get nothing. And sometimes you don't work and you get a lot. This is the nature of this world. Full of tests. Full of challenges. Good ones and bad. Okay, so he tells them, the afterlife, you don't work for it. Yet everything that you will get in the afterlife is going to depend on the work that you put in. And I don't see you working for it. Okay, so that's one. So this is the, we said, we're looking for the scholar, the teacher who is preoccupied with the afterlife. Then he continues. وَإِنَّكُمْ عُلَمَاءُ السُّوءِ الْأَجْرُ تَأْخُذُونَ وَالْعَمَلُ تُضَيِّعُونَ يُوشِكُ رَبُّ الْعَمَلِ أَنْ يَطْلُبَ عَمَلَهُ وَتُوشِكُونَ أَنْ تَخْرُجُوا مِنَ الدُّنْيَا الْعَرِيضَةِ إِلَىٰ ظُلْمَةِ الْقَبْرِ وَضِيقِهِ So he says, you are truly evil scholars. Why? You take the rewards. So here we're not clear what the rewards are, but he's going to explain it in the metaphor that he's giving. He says, you take the rewards, but you neglect the work. So he's giving the metaphor of someone who is paying you to do something. I'm going to give you a salary. I'm going to give you some sort of compensation in return, in exchange for the work you're performing. So if we apply it to ourselves in this world, the rewards is what we get from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The blessings, the bounties, the sustenance. Right? We take the rewards. Yet, you neglect the work. You're not doing the work. In return, 
for those blessings. And what's the proof of this interpretation? It's the next line. And the Lord of the work, the one who has employed you, Rabbul Amal, your boss, your supervisor or your boss, is about to ask you for his work. I've given you all of this. I've paid you all of this. I've given you all of this to perform the work. Now he's about to say, okay, so what have you done with what I have given you? Right? He's telling me, he's about to ask for his work. Are you ready? So, next line. And you are about to leave this vast world towards the darkness of the grave and its narrowness. So what's waiting for you is tough. It's not going to be an easy transition. Are you prepared? Have you done what it takes? So again, this is the criteria that we have to remember for the scholar. The scholar is the one who, or as we gain knowledge, we have to become the person who remember this. That this is inevitable. That we are all leaving the vastness, the beauty, the enlightenment of this world towards the darkness of the grave and its narrowness. What have we done to prepare? Is this one of our preoccupations or do we just neglect that? Do we Are we heedless, neglectful, forgetful that this is going to happen? And you're going to see this theme of the scholar is the one who doesn't forget. And sometimes it's not mentioned with any qualifiers. Doesn't forget what? Well, doesn't forget that. This is the end. What are we heedless of? What is it that we complete, constantly neglect? What is it that we constantly forget? We become distracted by this world. That's the whole theory of the Qur'an. The narrative of the Qur'an is you are distracted by this world when, when you shouldn't be. Live in this world, but don't be distracted by it. It's like a traveler. Don't be distracted by the way. You're moving towards the destination. Okay, so he continues. Allah Ta'ala nahakum anil khataya kama amarakum bisiyami wasala. This one is a little bit more subtle. He says, God has ordered you away from, has prohibited you from sins as he has ordered you to perform prayer and fasting. What does that mean? It is as though he's telling these scholars. And in a lot of cases, this may apply to a lot of us. It's not that we don't do the things that are ordered. It's not that we don't pray or we don't fast. Those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks of us, we'll do. Where the neglect happens, where the issues happen is, we engage in what is forbidden. So here he tells them, those two are both orders from God. One is not more important or less important than the other. What he forbids is as important as what he orders. It's not enough to say, but I pray and I fast. Yeah, but do you also break? You break the orders, you break the commands or not? So he's telling them, Allah Ta'ala, nahakum, he has forbidden you as he has ordered you. Yes, he has ordered you to pray and fast. And he has also forbidden you from performing sins. <clears throat> And then he goes into a series of, and I'm not going through all of them, he goes into a series of questions, rhetorical questions where we have to ask ourselves the same question. 
And each one of these questions begins with, how can someone be a scholar if? How can someone be claiming to be a carrier of knowledge if? And he gives one criteria after another. So this was all the introduction. And then now he says, for instance, كيف يكون من أهل العلم من دنياه عنده آثر من آخرته How can someone be of the people of knowledge if their world, this, their life in this world is more important to them than the afterlife? That's a criteria. That in itself, by itself, is a full criteria that Prophet Isa is giving us. How can someone be? To him, he did, that's not something that we can comprehend. It should not make any sense that someone who gives more importance to this world than the next is of the people of knowledge. Okay, We, we talked about this at a higher level. Here he is going in much more detail. It's a harsher, as we said, because he's talking to the scholars themselves. He's not talking to the masses. These are people who are supposed to know. Okay, in the next one he says, so he continues with this, كيف يكون من أهل العلم من دنياه عنده آثر من آخرته وهو مقبل على دنياه And so, how can someone be of the people of knowledge if they give more importance to this world than the afterlife and they are coming fully Facing this world fully, entering into, into this world fully, as opposed to facing their afterlife, being preoccupied with their afterlife. So this was the whole discussion of priorities that we had a couple of lectures ago. This is an instance of it. Then he continues. So this is another question. The same question is, and how can someone be of the people of knowledge if... And that which harms him is more beloved to him than that which is beneficial to him. How can we consider someone to be of the people of knowledge if they love the things that harm them more than than the things that are beneficial to them? How can you consider that person to be a people of the people of knowledge? Right? So he doesn't explain, and we're not going to explain either. That in itself becomes a criteria. Then he says, How can someone be of the people of knowledge when they seek knowledge, when they seek speech, he says literally, but really when they seek knowledge in order to report it to others? and not to act on it. And here, again, this is one of the biggest problems of becoming someone who is a scholar, becoming who is someone who is a teacher. Your job is to present. Your job is to share the knowledge with others. Here, Prophet Isa ends with this. He's telling them, you scholars, have you sought this knowledge to act on it? Or have you sought this knowledge to relay it to others, to report it to others, not to act on it. How can someone, he says, how can someone be of the people of knowledge if they seek the knowledge to report it to others? 
So we spend a lot of time, as we said, on the whole topic of action, of sincerity, in seeking knowledge, in acting on the knowledge. Our action on the knowledge, even if it's little, is much more important than having a lot of knowledge and not acting on it. Right? You'll remember all of those themes. We spent a lot of time on them. So here we have them all condensed in this one hadith from Prophet Isa salam. So that's the first hadith. Second hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. This one again from Nahj al-Balagha, sermon 108. We don't have time to go through the sermon. And in fact, it's a, it would be an awkward sermon to go to for a number of reasons. One of them is that it seems that sermon 108 um, has different parts. And this is not uncommon. A lot of sermons in Nahj al-Balagha are in fact this way. Sharif al-Radi did not tell us, did not report the entirety of the sermon. There are passages that are missing, right? And in fact, there are sermons that have been split into two or three sermons in Nahj al-Balagha. In fact, they are just one longer sermon that he broke up. And he didn't give all those details. So scholars have to go back and break it up into parts and tell us this sermon was delivered at that time. This part came from here. Okay, so the best way to read Nahj al-Balagha is really to read it line by line and do research. And that's why it's a... It's a it's a burdensome exercise, intellectual, academic exercise, in any case. So, Khutbah 108 definitely has a little bit of that. After Imam Ali alayhi salam praises Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he mentions the Holy Prophet. And then, there is this sentence. Our point right now is this sentence. This is the part that is relevant to us. We want to see what Imam Ali alayhi salam is saying about this teacher. More criteria, more traits we're looking for to understand who the teacher and the scholar is. But we also want to understand who Imam Ali alayhi salam is talking about. Okay, so let's read the passage and then we'll explain the, the secondary details. The point of the passage is this. He says, Tabibun dawarun This person is a physician, a medical doctor, who roams around with his medicine. What does that mean? That means he's not sitting as, you know, we typically find in today's world, when you go to the doctor, the doctor is in a clinic or in a hospital. He doesn't roam around. It's not the doctor who moves around. He is stable and people flock. People go to the doctor. He says this person, that Imam Ali salam is describing, he is tabib. He's going to, he carries cures, but he roams around. He moves around with his medicine. Doing what? First of all, قَدْ أَحْكَمَ مَرَاهِمَهِ وَأَحْمَ مَوَاسِمَهِ The first part, قَدْ أَحْكَمَ مَرَاهِمَهِ could mean two things. أَحْكَمَ could mean that he mastered or that he prepared. مَرَاهِم are the ointments. So the medicine that he's going to use. In today's world, we would say the creams, the oils, the medication that he's going to use. Either he's saying he has mastered them or he's saying he has prepared them. Right? That's one. Two, وَأَحْمَى مَوَاسِمَهِ A lot of the medicine in old times was about what? Tools that you use physically. And those tools had to be heated. Right? And in today's world, you also, if you have no way to sanitize them properly, you have to heat them to kill the germs. 
So he says, he's prepared. His instruments have also been heated. He's ready to act. He's ready to cure. Right? What else? يَضَعُ ذَلِكَ حَيْثُ الْحَاجَةُ إِلَيْهِ He places those things, the ointments, the medication, the instruments that have been heated, he puts them where they are absolutely needed, on the location of need. What are these locations of need? Again, the metaphor continues, but now we're going to understand what he's talking about. He says, مِنْ قُلُوبٍ عُمِيًا Ah, there are hearts that are have gone blind. So he's going to put those ointments and that medication and those instruments on the hearts that have gone blind. وَآذَانٍ صُمْ And on the ears that have gone deaf. وَأَلْسِنَةٍ بُكْمْ And on the tongues that have gone mute. مُتَتَبِّعٍ بِدَوَائِهِ مَوَاضِعَ الْغَفْلَةِ He follows, carrying his medication, he follows the locations of or the spots of غَفْلَةِ of heedlessness, of neglect, of forgetfulness. That's what he's looking for, like a hunter. He goes for those places. And the spots of confusion, the spots of misguidance, of loss. Okay, This is the passage that is relevant to us. The rest of what I'm going to say is secondary. It's more academic than this. Here, Imam Ali gave us a very clear description of who the teacher is. Of who the scholar is. Now we may ask, but who is he describing? So here, if you go in the khutbah, this is where the scholars are going to differ. If you go back to the majority of the commentators of Nahj al-Balagha, they say that Imam Ali salam is talking about himself. They say he is describing the role that he was playing. Okay? The majority of the commentators said that. The exception, unfortunately the exception, and we agree with the exception, is that he is describing the Holy Prophet Why? Those who say that he was describing the Imam himself, they did not give any reasons. And I went through a lot of commentaries. Why do we say that he may be describing the Holy Prophet? Because the passage right before was talking about the Holy Prophet. And these are pronouns. Referring to, potentially, we would think the same person. The issue, once again, as we said about Nahj al-Balagha, is that sometimes there are passages missing. So sometimes the Sharif al-Radi will say, وَمِنْهَا And even those are not 100% clear. When he says وَمِنْهَا, it means, and a part of the sermon. So, did you just skip a part? When there is a pronoun, what is it referring to? Now we may no longer know. Right? Because we don't know what it, the pronoun, who the pronoun refers to. When he says he, who is he? If there's a passage missing, I will not know unless he tells me. So this might be one of those cases where it's not clear whether the imam was describing himself, as many of our scholars have said, or what looks a lot more evident to us when we read it today is that he's referring to the role of the Holy Prophet And the passage Right before says, so as we said, the khutbah initially started with praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in multiple ways. And then he, Sharif al-Radhi says, فِي ذِكْرِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ Then he mentions the Holy Prophet. What does he say? اِخْتَارَهُ مِنْ شَجَرَةِ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ 
ومشكات الضياء وذؤابة العلياء وسرة البطحاء ومصابيح الظلمة وينابيع الحكمة So he says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose him the holy prophet from the lineal tree of prophets the, the lineage of prophets so from Ibrahim alayhi salam that would be the lineal tree from the niche of illumination okay which is again these are they all seem to be descriptors of prophethood of carrying the message of God right and this is how it's sometimes described depending on how you understand the verses of the Quran this niche the niche is is a corner in which they used to put the light so that it doesn't go extinct right the wind doesn't get to it because it's inside a wall in, in a corner that's the niche okay it's kind of like a mihrab it's usually an indentation inside the wall or at least in a corner so this is where they would put a lantern for instance so this is the when he says wa mishkat that's the mishkat it's that hole where you put the light so that nothing can get to it and turn it off so he says he he chose him from the lineal tree of prophets from the niche of illumination from the extremity of the heights so the height of the heights right from the center of the valley the valley here is i simply translated it as the valley it's al-batha batha was this actually an in geographic area in in Mecca and outside on the outskirts of Mecca it's this open desert open land uh, near Mecca so when he says was it's in the center of that desert to them that means something it means that he is not unknown he chose him from the heart of your people and from your tribes right from the middle everybody knows who he is right from the center and from the lights of uh, darkness and from the sources of wisdom. So in a lot of ways, this is a description of prophethood. He chose him from all that is the best in prophethood to bring him to you. And then the next passage is Tabibun Dawarun He is that physician who roams around with his medication or medicine. Okay, so this is the first part. This is the, the first Part. And then after that, he goes into another description. It seems to be about either the masses in general or Bani Umayya specifically, where he says, Lam So they did not benefit from the rays or the lights of wisdom. So after he did all of this and he was this roaming physician to them, they still did not benefit from the rays or the lights of wisdom from him. Okay, so, and then he continues. It's a long, uh, it's called Min Khutab al-Malahim, as they say. Malahim is when Imam Ali salam talks in a way that seems nebulous or ambiguous, but clearly he is talking about the end of times. Okay, so there's a lot of passages in there that don't seem to fully apply to his time. They apply to much later in time, and that requires a whole lengthy discussion. Anyway, so, the point here, go back to this image that Imam Ali salam gave of the scholar, of the teacher. The first thing that jumps to us is when he makes a point to say, Tabibun dawarun That he's a physician, he's someone who carries cures, but he roams, he moves. We said the person who is a teacher, scholar, has no arrogance. No air of superiority. 
Now, I'm going to open a quick bracket here. This is a topic we'll come back to later. We're going to find some ahadith that say, be careful how you share knowledge. You don't share all knowledge all the time to everyone. You have to be selective. There's a time where sharing knowledge can be dangerous. There's a time when it's not dangerous, but it could be degrading to you or to religion or to knowledge itself. It lowers of the value of the quality of knowledge and how people perceive knowledge. So know how to share knowledge and with whom and in what way. We're going to find these ahadith. But in general, now that you carry knowledge, your role is going to be to share knowledge, to spread knowledge. This person that Imam Ali is describing is going out of his way to share knowledge. It's not someone who says, I sit here and if anyone is interested, it's up to them to come to me and to find me. No, the Imam said it's the opposite. He goes hunting for the locations of need so that he can use his instruments and his tools. Who needs this knowledge? Who needs this guidance? I will go out of my way to find them and bring them. And don't forget the hadith to, from God to Prophet Musa salam. Okay? Where he was telling him, who do I bring to you? He told him, who's this lost soul? He told him, the one who is starting to give up on my mercy. The one who is the stubborn sinner. The one who does not know where his imam is. Who does not have access to him. So he doesn't know how to worship me. Right? So this, this is the role that the scholar plays. You go out of your way. Don't be arrogant against or uh, upon the people that you're supposed to be serving with your knowledge. And if the Holy Prophet himself is doing that, surely you need to do that too. The Holy Prophet himself was the one running after the people, trying to find who is it that requires my knowledge, who is it that requires my guidance so that I can share it with them. That's the first point. The second point even if there are conditions and there are circumstances where it's important to keep in mind, is this the right context, is this the right circumstance to share knowledge, to try to guide others? We have to distinguish between the perspective of the learner and the perspective of the one carrying the knowledge. There will be times where, and we're going to see the hadith about this, you're going to find a hadith that tell you, for instance, that knowledge, like many other things, knowledge is something that is of a very high degree. It's something noble. It's something precious. You go to it. Knowledge does not come to you. You go to knowledge. You respect knowledge. You honor knowledge by going to it. And therefore, you go to the scholar. You go to the person who carries the knowledge, who will share the knowledge. But that's from the perspective of whom? The learner. If I want to learn... I go to knowledge. That's my duty. Now, flip it. The perspective of the person carrying the knowledge. Does the person carrying the knowledge simply say, it's their duty to come to me. I have the knowledge, they have to come. No. My duty is to share the knowledge. Whether they act based on their duty or not, I have to act based on mine. My job is to share my knowledge. I can't find an excuse which very quickly slips into ego and arrogance and say they're not coming to the knowledge, they don't respect knowledge enough, that's it, they don't deserve it. No, you have knowledge that you know there are people who are going to benefit from. 
And again, if the model, if the criteria that we, the standard that we have in mind is the Holy Prophet, and this is how Imam Ali alayhi salam describes him, then surely I need to go out of my way to share that knowledge. Okay, that's the second point. The third point, and I don't think that this is random. When Imam Ali alayhi salam mentions these, he's not just mentioning these for poetic reasons, to make the metaphor nicer. When he's, he doesn't only say that he is a roaming physician, he mentioned two more traits related to each other. He said that he has ahkama marahima wa ahma mawasima. He has mastered his med- medicine, his ointments, and he has heated his instruments. He has prepared his instruments. This tells us that this is someone, yes, he roams around looking for those who need his help. But he's a true expert. That's what he's saying. He has mastered his tools. He has mastered the medicine that he's going to use. And he has prepared it. He's sharpened his tools. He's heated his tools. So as a scholar, what are your tools? Well, it depends. Really, it's the knowledge And how do you communicate that knowledge to the people who need it? This requires expertise. It's not that I go out of my way to share it. What am I sharing? Am I an expert in this field? I may want to share. I know enough, but I'm not an expert. It means I have to go to work. I have to learn enough about it so that I can speak about it. So that I can have something that guides the people with it. I have to acquire the tools that I'm going to use on the people where Imam Ali says he knows where to put the tool or where to put the medicine to cure. Do I know where to put it to cure? This is an expertise. This is work, hard work. Right? So you have to have the tools, have the expertise, know how to use it, exactly like we had in the previous week where we saw the hadith that basically tells us you are able to identify what the issue is. You know what the problem is and you know how to cure it. You know how to counter that problem, how to cure that illness. So in this case, Imam Ali gave us metaphors. It's now up to us to understand what those mean. Apply them in our communities, in our reality. When he says that there are hearts that have gone blind, ears that have gone deaf, Tongues that have gone mute. What does that mean? In my reality, what does that mean? And what do I need to do to cure those illnesses? What instruments do I need so that I cure those types of diseases? Right? So inshallah, the rest we can spend more time on later. It's probably a a passage to which we may come back in the future. But I think this part, inshallah, covers enough of what we wanted to cover in terms of the traits, of the characteristics of the um, of the scholar, of the teacher. We can spend a few more minutes on the next uh, topic under the teacher. And this has to do with the importance of we started touching on it in the first hadith, the importance of knowledge leading to piety, leading to spirituality. All of these are the same theme, leading to God-fearing. 
leading to an attachment or a preoccupation with the afterlife. All of these are different ways of saying the same thing. And a lot of these, as we said, are going to actually be kind of a, a reference to the whole topic that we discussed at length much earlier about the importance of knowledge leading to action and all the different meanings that come out of that. Okay, so in a lot of ways, we're also setting up, this becomes an introduction to the next topic, which is going to be that the scholar has to be detached from this world. It's not that you do not live in this world. It's that the more knowledge you have, the more true knowledge, Islamic knowledge you have, the less importance you're going to give to this world. Because you start understanding its real measure, its real value with regards to what's waiting after death. And so you live your life accordingly. This has to show. So this is a theme that we're going to see again and again in different ways. This idea that knowledge has to lead to a detachment from this world. And detachment does not mean that you don't live in this world. Enjoy this world and live in this world, not an issue. It's how much place, how much importance does this take in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, as opposed to the things that are waiting after death. Okay? So the first hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, very interesting hadith. We could spend a very long time on it. He simply says, Al-ilmu yurshiduk. So, knowledge is going to guide you. It's going to be a guide. Towards what? Al-ilmu yurshiduk ila ma amaraka Allahu ta'ala bih. Knowledge guides you to that to which or towards which God has commanded you, ordered you to do. So that's the role of knowledge. What needs to help it? Zuhd, in a lot of cases, they, they translate it as ascetism. Okay? Like living like a monk. Okay? But that's not what the Imam is saying. A zuhd is simply that you don't feel detached as though the world owns you, that you are a slave to the world. This detachment from the world is going to make the way towards that which God orders or what makes God happy with you, it makes the way easy. It makes your path easy. This, the more attached you are to the world, the more difficult this path is going to be. You want to make your path easy, be detached from this world. That's what the Imam is saying in this first hadith, which I think is very interesting because he explains the different roles of everything that we can gain. Each one of them plays a different role. Detachment alone does not show you the way. You can be the greatest ascetic. You can be the person who is the most detached from the worldly you know, existence, the material existence. If you have no knowledge, you don't know where you're going. Imam says, knowledge is what guides you to that which God has ordered. I have to know where I'm going first. What does God want from me? What is my destination? God has given me a map. Knowledge is that map. Okay, now what? Now you have to walk on that way. Imam says, and Zuhd, the detachment is going to make that way easy. The more of it you have, the easier that path is. The more attachment, the more difficult that path becomes. Next hadith. So, 
you, and I'm intentionally using a hadith. Each one of them says something different, but in truth, they're all saying the same thing. They're just different ways of looking at the same reality. What is supposed to be the point of knowledge? So we saw one, another one. He says, The fruit that you gain from knowledge is worship. That you worship God. So this has to become a criteria. When I'm gaining knowledge, does this make me worship God more? Or worship God better? If yes, this is true knowledge. God is happy with this knowledge, and this is Islamic knowledge. It makes me want to worship God. Or worship God more. Or worship God better. This is knowledge. So this is one of the aims of knowledge. Another one. مَنْ خَشِيَ اللَّهُ The one who fears God has completed his knowledge. If the knowledge you're gaining makes you fear God, makes, makes you fear hell, makes you fear the anger of God, this is knowledge. This is a higher level of knowledge. The Imam says he's completed his knowledge. In two words, but you can't do that in English. The one who is most knowledgeable among you is the one who is the most fearful among you. Fearful of what? Fearful of God, which means you fear nothing in this world. It's not that you're the person who has the most fear in this world. You're, you're afraid of everything. No, the person who is the most fearful of God, Imam he's giving you a, a mathematical equation. He's telling you, the one who has the most knowledge equals the one who has the most fear of God. So now, Go and think about that. What am I... The information, the data, the knowledge that I'm gaining, does that make me feel fear towards God or not? And of course, don't forget, this is one side of the equation. The other is mercy. And we talked about the hadith. That this is the teacher, the scholar, is someone who is able to strike the right balance between making you want, appreciate, Understand the mercy, the compassion, the forgiveness of God while making you not forget the wrath, the punishment, the anger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, next hadith from the Holy Prophet In this one, there's two hadith, there's one similar, there's in fact a few of them, but I'm, I'm uh, using here one from the Holy Prophet, from one from Imam Ali alayhi salam, just because there's a few details added in the one from Imam Ali. The original one from the Holy Prophet he says, لَوْ تَعْلَمُونَ مَا أَعْلَمْ لَبَكَيْتُمْ كَثِيرًا وَلَضَحِكْتُمْ قَلِيلًا وَلَخَرَجْتُمْ إِلَى الصُّعَدَاءِ أو الصُّعَدَاتِ تَجْأَرُونَ إِلَى اللَّهِ لَا تَدْرُونَ تَنْجُونَ أو لَا تَنْجُونَ So the Holy Prophet says, if only you knew what I know, then you would weep a lot and you would laugh but a little. And you would leave to the deserts or to the mountains, depending on the word, seeking refuge in God, unsure whether you will be rescued or not. Right? So this, is, this would be your state, if you knew what I know. So the reason why we're mentioning this hadith is, we're saying knowledge leads to fear of God. Knowledge leads to detachment from this world. 
knowledge leads to more worship. You see the application. The Holy Prophet says, if you knew what I know, this is how you would carry yourself. You would leave everything behind. You would be preoccupied with those things so much that you would spend your time crying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, asking His forgiveness, not knowing whether He's going to grant it to you or not. Right? You live in that state. The next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, clearly he is repeating the words of the Holy Prophet. He says, So if only you knew what I know from that which has been folded into the unhidden for you. Here the Imam says the same wording. Then you would go to either the mountains or to the deserts. Crying over your actions, the Imam says. And you may strike yourselves. And you would leave behind your possessions without any guardian over them. Sorry. And this, this is a key. Again, this is a sign of knowledge. He says, and the only thing that any of you would be preoccupied with, concerned with, would be his own soul. He would not be distracted by anyone or anything else. So this becomes another criteria. He says, if you knew what I know. So the Imam is describing his state. Just the, the Holy Prophet is describing his true state. The only thing that matters to me is what? And this is not out of selfishness. This is not ego. This is not narcissism. This is because I understand what matters. And what matters is my own soul. This is the only thing that matters to me. Am I rescuing my soul? Am I achieving salvation? Am I good? Everything else has to lead to that. When I worry about others, it's because I worry about my own salvation. Because this is going to contribute to my own salvation. It's going to make my soul better. It's going to make my afterlife better. So I worry about others. I help others. I go out of my way to, you know, be somehow involved in anyone else's life. Imam Ali Salam, by the way, he says this much more explicitly, even in his letter to Imam Al-Hassan alayhi salam. He tells him, I don't care about anyone or anything. The only thing that matters to me is my soul. But, but I have found that you are a part of me. Then he says, no, you are me. And so, what is going to affect you is going to affect me. Okay, and this is one of the most beautiful passages of Nahj al-Balagha. He's talking to his son. He says, while I don't care about anyone except myself, how can I not care about you when you are me? You are my son. You're an extension of me. And so therefore, I have to give you advice. I have to care about you. Does it mean that the Imam doesn't care about anyone else? No. The same logic is now going to apply. Just like I care about my biological son, I care about everyone else. Because they are an extension of me. Of course I care about them. And we've talked about this, and inshallah we'll talk more about it too. This notion of community. What, what does this unity really mean? When people are, feel like they are one. Right? In that sense. There's a way where you have to look at this and say, all I care about is my soul. But what, how do you understand what your soul is? And what is part of that soul? There's a way where you are just 
interested out of curiosity by what's happening to others. That does not help your soul in any which way. And there's another way where you feel like, no, you are united. There is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given importance to that is going to unite you with other people. Maybe they are family members. Maybe they are community members. Maybe they are people, human beings, who live in the same society as you do. And the Holy Quran says, all of you are going to be brought back together. You are going to be an ummah. And if you're going to be an ummah, you can't just neglect those people. You are responsible for them and they're responsible for you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to ask you individually as an ummah. He's going to ask you as an ummah. How did you act? If a few of you act, then that may save the whole ummah. The whole ummah can say, we did this because a few of us did. The whole ummah can say, we did. Right? So this is going to change depending on how you understand who you are, your I, is going to change. This, this requires perspective, requires depth in the way you understand your place in the world, your duty in the world. But none of this contradicts what the Imam is saying here. The more knowledge you gain, the less distracted you are going to be by anything that is not your own soul. The salvation of your soul. Because everything we just described is feeding back into the salvation of your own soul. So long as it's leading to that, then that's all that matters. The same thing, the, the messengers, the prophets, the imams are doing the same thing. Everything they're doing is for what? It's for the salvation of their own soul. But how does that show in the world? It shows in the world as full sacrifice to people, to guiding people, to teaching people. But really, all that gives them is the salvation of their soul. Much more salvation than the normal person. Because they're giving a lot more. But at the end, they are the ones who are going to benefit fully. And the Holy Quran is very clear. In ahsantum, ahsantum li anfusikum. You do good, you are only doing good for yourselves. That's it. It may look like others are benefiting. They may actually benefit, but you are the one who's truly benefiting. In the eyes of God, in the true way of recording reward and punishment, you are the one benefiting. Regardless of the appearances, someone may look like they are benefiting from the good you're doing. In truth, you're the only one who's really benefiting. The rest is secondary. The benefit they get is secondary to the benefit you're getting by helping them. Okay, so inshallah, all of this is also very clear. The next hadith, I think we can finish these. The next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. I'll try to stop commenting so much. Thamaratul ilm al-amalu bih. So the fruit of knowledge is to act on the knowledge. This one we spent a whole series of lectures on, so inshallah that is clear. Al-ilmu kathir wal-amalu qalil. Knowledge is a lot, Imam Ali alayhi salam says. Action is but little. So this can have different interpretations. Those who act are a few. Action itself, when he looks at the world, he sees there's no action. There's a lot of knowledge. A lot of people who carry knowledge. There's a lot of knowledge, but the amount of action in the world, good action does not match the amount of knowledge there is. Right? 
ما أكثر من يعلم العلم ولا يتبعه How many are those? How numerous are those who know the knowledge? من يعلم العلم They know knowledge The Imam does not dispute does not put any doubt over the idea that they have knowledge ما أكثر من يعلم العلم ولا يتبعه But they don't follow it They don't follow the knowledge they have They carry the knowledge But they don't follow it The next hadith علم لا يصلحك ضلال A knowledge that does not improve you Make you better Is a misguidance ومال لا ينفعك وبال And a wealth that does not benefit you Is a burden And we also have other hadith that say that the knowledge does, that does not benefit you is a burden. Because it's a burden because it becomes a responsibility that you carry, you're not acting on it, and God will ask you about it. What did you do with it? If you say nothing, no good, then it would have been better for you not to have it. Next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, إِنَّمَا زَهَّدَ النَّاسَ فِي طَلَبِ الْعِلْمِ كَثْرَةُ مَا يَرَوْنَ مِنْ قِلَّةِ مَنْ عَمِلَ بِمَا عَلِمْ that which has made people perceive the seeking of knowledge as something cheap, something without value, is what? Is the scarcity of what they find of those who act based upon what they know. This is a complex hadith, a complex statement in Arabic and in English. Imam Ali salam says when he looks at when you when people look in general at those who carry knowledge from all those who carry knowledge they see so few of them acting on the knowledge they carry this makes people consider the seeking of knowledge something without any value it's something cheap it's not worthwhile so they don't even seek knowledge because the examples that they have of people carrying the knowledge are not examples of people who act on the knowledge they carry. So this becomes another warning from Imam Ali By default, it's difficult to act on the knowledge we have when the whole point of the knowledge is to act on it. The last one, and maybe we'll stop here, the last one from Imam Ali salam. The fruit of knowledge, Thamaratul Ilm, Ikhlasul Amal. So before it was simply Thamaratul Ilm al Amal. It was simply the fruit of knowledge. Why do you plant a tree? So that you get to its fruit. You spent all this time investing and working hard and making that tree grow so that you get to its fruit. So the previous hadith, the fruit of knowledge is acting on the knowledge. Now you act in a way that matches the knowledge. Here he adds one word. He says, The fruit of knowledge is to act with sincerity. That's why we said in the series on sincerity, this is the highest form of action and the highest form of intent that you make what you're doing purely for God. Okay, Before there wasn't that standard. Now the standard is at the highest level. That you're not only acting based on the knowledge, that your action is with sincere intentions, with pure intentions for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'll stop here. Inshallah, we continue. We have a lot more to cover. 
But for this, inshallah, we're or good will move slow, slow, slowly. We'll start moving towards more of the social dimension of the role of the scholar and the teacher. So any questions, concerns, comments? It's a long one, actually. <laughs> so just uh, be patient with me. So, I was just taking some notes. Uh, no, I was taking notes before the lecture. And then, you know, I got enlightened with the with, with your lecture. So, in, the, uh, in the journey of knowledge, uh, like word-wise, and now we're talking, we've been talking, you know, the... I call it the Middle Ages of knowledge. Uh, and you, you've alluded to that, like the Islamic knowledge. If, if I take it, you know, like translate it into English, uh, and we can discuss it, like this topic for for <laughs> for years. <laughs> so, and now, like for the last years, we we flip it into Islamic knowledge, and I have touched, you know this sense in a couple of your lectures, like among the 50s, kind of thing, maybe, maybe I was confused or, or fooled, but uh, I, I think uh, you were alluding to Aslam al in many stages, in the spots. Uh, but, but, and then if you go to Aslam al and you, you read what, what everybody is telling, you know, like some are simply discouraging this topic to, to go further, some they say that this is the future of, of you know, our, our, um, uh, like nowadays Islamic society or communities. I go out from support of the first. <laughs> it's not gonna think of it anything. But like through the lectures, Paul, so you, you alluded to it, like the height of the So. I was surprised that uh, many scholars uh, referred that to uh, to uh, in my uh, I, I from the beginning I because right before it he was he was describing the prophet some of us it's it's blatant to me so yeah. I, I learned something from you today so this to me you know linked like the manifest me linked to and why I don't know how to translate it like this. In, in English, I'll, I'll let you I'll let you do the, the hard work, uh, or and and itself like Qawlwaiya leads to the expertise because you have levels of expertise. That's probably if you simplify it into an equation, because I was trying to figure out like the elements to form an equation. Usually, it's very easy to implement in the daily life. So I found that the the uh, like kind of permanent milestone for everybody. We want to be like practically speaking. How could we take advantage of all this ahadith and make it our daily life? And everybody, his level and his capacity to digest and to rearticulate and to reproduce what we have learned. But everyone among us has has a duty. So as a parent, stone, like I would say, it's it's the duality of or. Um, the, the product of knowledge plus the um, plus the uh, 
plus which is this power, conscious power or whatever, multiply both of them, multiply the multiplier of it is is uh, the, the expertise, where E equals one for everybody. So if we have no expertise at all, we still can combine the knowledge with the with the uh, with the Kualwaya and produce something. So to me, everybody can produce something. It can be effective within the community. Um, so, but but my big struggle is what is E? What is expertise? Or if we can break it down into an equation, then what are the components of this expertise in, in, in every in every field? Because we can we can take one hadith and. Then, to understand it deeply and then implement it in our daily life and becomes one of our character and then spread it out right and teach many people and, and it would take a long life or all, all, all life entire life and then but this like with the same perspective if we can only develop this e before developing it like how could we define it and in all levels i'm not talking about islamic knowledge only but in all levels mm -hmm. because Manifest that we have something, but you know, if we if we like it or not, we're trying to we're trying to we're we're Islamization of the knowledge, right? So, in my mechanic, my physics, in my engineer uh, knowledge, how can I turn it into an Islamic knowledge mm -hmm. with a with like a with a, a tangible result, not not just words or, or discussions or, or debates, right? Like uh, like transforming the knowledge into act. So, first, I want, want to know like your standpoints about the, the equation of you know this the, the milestone that is the, the the you know k I would say plus p multiplied by e, the knowledge plus the the all multiplied by the expertise, um, and, and then. How would you, would you would you define the expertise or the elements or components that forms this expertise? Okay. So what you're uh, referring to? Thank you very much for for that uh, question. Very deep question, very technical, very advanced, and um, you refer to a few, I think, very important topics or themes that I was not necessarily planning on, on talking about, maybe I would have referred to Islamat al-Ulum a little bit later in the series. Um, I think the ultimate question you have, so I'll make a point about uh, Islamat al-Ulum, which I was hoping not to make, but we're going to make it. And secondly, about um, the expertise or the types of expertise and what that includes. And I know I'm going to leave you on your hunger with both answers, but that's going to be the short answer. So... Um, the question has to do with, you know, what do we think about Aslamat al-Ulum, first and foremost? And secondly, uh, you proposed an equation, a uh, beautiful equation, and uh, you're saying that in that equation, one of the variables is expertise. And so how do we define expertise or what, what is included in it? Um, in short, the notion of Aslamat al-Ulum, I don't think is the one that we've been talking about. But, and, and this is the part that I did not, I hoped I would not have to say, I was planning on mentioning it because I think anyone who is following this series in depth, it's an unavoidable in today's world to at least mention so that everyone knows what Islamat al-Ulum is. 
So I do promise that we will mention it enough so that people know what Islamat al-Ulum is. But in very short, it's the idea that, um, and there are extreme point of views uh, towards this question. What do we do with today's knowledge? The, today's knowledge as in modern knowledge. So the world went into, you know, after the medieval times into contemporary and then the modern world. And we feel like the types of knowledge that exist were not the same types of knowledge that existed in medieval times. So now that Muslims woke up to this, it's as though when you read the literature, it's as though Muslims fell asleep for a few centuries and we woke up and the world was a new world. And we found that the sciences that are used in today's world are no longer the sciences of the medieval times, which we are accustomed to and we were good at. We were leading the world in those as Muslims. And today we find ourselves behind the rest of the world with regards to these disciplines. So what do we do? So one of the options, one of the theories or the, the proposed solutions is that we learn those sciences and those disciplines as they are and we apply them. And we leave behind, regardless of what we do with what we are, we know. So that's one extreme. And then on the other extreme, you have those who say we're going to take all of those knowledge, disciplines, all those fields of knowledge in today's modern world, and we're going to retranslate them. We're going to translate them into Islamic language, Islamic principles, Islamic values, Islamic teachings. Okay, whatever that means. That's the theory. I'm not going to go into the details. Okay, we're going to translate them, so that's the other extreme. We will make it Islamic. Every field of knowledge, every discipline that we know exists today and upon which the modern world exists is going to be translated into Islamic teachings. And then we can consume it, and that will allow us to create an Islamic society, allow us to live by Islamic rules and laws and teachings and principles. And, of course, there is everything in between, all sorts of permutations in between. And the majority of our big thinkers over the past maybe 60, 70 years, if not more, have had something to say about this. So you can imagine the different variations and theories that exist out there about this notion of Islamat al-Ulum. What we try to do in this series is to give an answer to this question without saying that this is a question and this is what we're trying to do. And in short, we're saying that you may learn those types of knowledge and disciplines as they are without even having to convert them and you can still call those Islamic. How? Because what matters is not the type of information that you're getting, which a lot of authors have tripped upon, have fallen into. They focus on the type of information that it is. But our, not, our, our religion says what's more important is how you come to it. It's the attitude which is your niya, so it's more spiritual and belief as opposed to the type of information you have. If you have the right worldview, if you know that there's a God and an afterlife and a system that God has put in place, and you understand therefore that you have to come to things with the right intentions and do them with the right intent, the rest is secondary. And so the question becomes much more a spiritual one than it is one of the type of data that it is. That said, there is the type of expertise, and that's the second question. Does this, is, is this completely open? Does our religion not say, what types of expertise should we acquire? And this is what we're leaving towards the, after this, this uh, uh, theme, uh, until this topic is done, 
So we're going to be done with the learner-teacher community part, and then we're going to talk about the types of knowledge and how our religion says to prioritize some over others. And this is going to be the solution. Do we need expertise or not? Yes, we need expertise. Expertise in what? That's a question that I promised I would leave you on your hunger on. I'm not going to answer it. Although, although we spent a bit of time, it was not the complete answer. We spent a bit of time at the beginning of the series where we went through, actually, I don't remember how many categories. I think maybe 13, 15, 10 to 15 categories. We went through the various verses of the Holy Quran and we put them in buckets of types of knowledge that the Holy Quran says you must go and get. Okay, so inshallah, we're going to come back to that and we're going to complete, kind of close off that loop and say, based on the hadith and the Holy Quran, here are the types of knowledge, therefore expertise, that our religion says we have to acquire. Regardless of whether you're living in early Islamic times or in medieval times or at the end of times. Those are types of knowledge that our religion says, go and get them. And of course, no one can get all of them. And we're going to have the principles in our religion of how to acquire knowledge, how much of it, and how to prioritize. And so, can anyone learn all of it? No. So what do we do? Right? And so, I think increasingly, we are headed towards the collective as opposed to the individual. But inshallah, that will... That is left to the communities and to societies to engineer and administer and organize themselves accordingly. But the principles are going to be all there explicitly laid out in the hadith, inshallah, and in the verses of the Quran. I don't know if that answered fully or not, but uh, inshallah, enough of an answer. Yeah. That's awareness. I, I'm going to simply, I'm going to simply translate that as your awareness of the times. And I think you're going to see that explicitly um, referred to in the types of knowledge that we have to acquire. But keep it in mind, and I know you will, when we talk about them, we'll see if it answers your question or not. But you have to give us a few lectures to get there, inshallah. Yeah. Allah khalikum. First, uh, I just want to say, uh, excellent lecture. Um, it was very enlightening. Um, uh, so my question is regarding uh, acquiring knowledge. Um, so in regards to when we were uh, listening to several scholars, I have trouble understanding uh, how, how do we identify someone that is being sincere in their ways of teaching and as opposed to someone who's not sincere or they don't have good intentions. So um, I ask this question because, this question because uh, there are scholars that are from different sects in within the Islamic, Islamic world. So there's Al-Sunnat and al So how do we know uh, who is more accurate and who is more sincere? Because there are different, there are inconsistencies with, with where we can Thank you for that question. So the question is, and I always repeat the question in case those who are watching uh, don't hear it. Uh, so the question is, when we hear different scholars teach uh, or lecture, how do we assess the sincerity of what is being taught? Especially if we take into consideration that a lot of the scholars are coming from very different ideological backgrounds. So a couple of things. The first 
uh, remark, and inshallah, this one is clear. We are not saying that we want to judge anyone or assess anyone's spirituality or intentions. Unless you have, you know, very clear evidence that you can rely on that someone's intentions are suspicious or wrong, simply wrong or evil, um, we assume that everyone's intentions are good. So that part should be without question, right? But the second part that you mentioned, I think is now bringing us to a completely different discussion. And that discussion is how accurate scientifically is the information, how valid is the, how objective is the information. That's a different discussion. So you and I may both be 100% sincere in what we are uh, presenting to the world, um, but you are saying, you know, that uh, this curtain is green and I'm saying that it is red and someone else is saying that it's white. And we all 100% believe in what we are saying. So it's not an issue of sincerity. In this case, it's a scientific debate. We have to equip ourselves with the tools. So long as you don't have the tool yourself, you are going to be stuck following someone else. And so you have to find those that you trust with that area of expertise and knowledge to tell you, but what color is it really? Because those three experts are giving me three different interpretations of this. We have criteria, I think, in our religion. To us, one of the criteria is Ahl al-Bayt. So when two people differ on Ahl al-Bayt, to us, the short answer becomes, well, if they are deferring about them in the sense that one of them is saying, we follow Ahl al-Bayt, and another says no, to us that's done. This one who says no has been eliminated. They've eliminated themselves out of the equation. Our religion, the way we understand our religion is there is no Islam without Ahl al-Bayt. Because the Holy Prophet said, I am leaving two things behind, the Qur'an and Ahl al-Bayt. There is no Islam without Qur'an, there is no Islam without Ahl al-Bayt, period. So if this is where the discussion is, then I can add you know, layers upon layers of detail here. But at the core, it comes down to this. If it's between Ahl al-Bayt and not Ahl al-Bayt, to us, that's a moot point. That in itself cannot be a matter of discussion. We think this is a, a principle established, and of course, there's science behind it. So we have to go to the ahadith, we have to go to the Holy Quran, and establish the validity of this, whether this is a, a, val, uh, a valid belief or not. If this belief in itself is an issue, then we have to go back a layer. You're basically starting from what we consider to be the principles of Islam, the basics of belief. What, when you say Islam, what does it include? Okay, it's like someone who tells you, for instance, you say two scholars are going to disagree on this attribute of God or this act of worship. To someone like me, when you say, for instance, uh, there is an Islam, but Ahl al-Bayt are maybe scholars like other scholars, for instance. And so their opinions matter as much as the opinion of another imam, another scholar from another uh, madhab, for instance. Um, in that case, to me, it's like someone who says there is a version of Islam, but that has no prayer in it, or that has no pilgrimage in it, or that has no fasting in it. It doesn't make sense. Like these are the foundations of our faith. And to me, Ahl al-Bayt become even more important than that because that's how I get to the prayer. How do I know how to pray without Ahl al-Bayt? When there is disagreement among the Muslims on how to pray and how to fast and how to perform pilgrimage and how to even perform your wudu. Right? So even those basics. So when you have Ahl al-Bayt as your safety net, that's it. Now I have a very, it's a, it's a minimum, but a minimum that is of a very high level. 
because Ahl al-Bayt have given us a lot. If you're only limiting yourself to the ahadith that you have from the Holy Prophet and the Holy Quran and the very contradictory interpretations that we can find about every verse of the Holy Quran, you are still going to be in a much more ambiguity and um, require a lot more effort on your part than saying an Ahl al-Bayt are part of that equation as a minimum. If you've passed that threshold, the discussion becomes a lot easier. Now I can compare the points of view in a different way than to say the points of view are between those who put Ahl al-Bayt in this equation and those who do not. Now here we're starting from, from scratch. It's a lot more work to establish the, the main foundations. And, and this has to be done no matter what field you're in. This is like the basics of, of philosophy. You study from the time of Aristotle is that the, the mind moves from what is known and considered a conviction to that which is unknown. We have to both agree on something before we can move to the next step, to the next detail of it. If there's no disagreement, we have to go back a layer and agree on that, right? And so here's where you have a choice to make. You have a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of time that you can put into these things, whatever they may be, all of them, knowledge. You have to decide for yourself which of the things, and so logically you start from the priorities, how far do you go back and you specialize in to become yourself the expert enough that you can make up your own judgment about this? And on which of these points are you going to defer to an authority, to a trusted authority, just like we do, and we spoke a little bit about this last week, I think, when we said, for instance, you're going to trust your plumber and you're going to trust your mechanic and you're going to trust your physician when you go to them with that question. You have to have some sort of criteria. No one can become an expert in all of it. So you have to have some sort of criteria that allows you to say, and on this I'm going to defer to, and we all do this in everything, including religion, right? You're, how far back do you go? You can know a lot about the Holy Quran. You're still going to open the books of tafsir before you and and be inspired at least, even if you are a mufassir yourself, you're going to be inspired by their tafsir and their commenta commentaries and their interpretation. You are doing a taqlid. You are doing a following of someone else's authority and expertise. The issue is how much of it are you doing? And so there are things that in our faith we believe, God says, you have to reach that as, your, as a matter of conclusion and conviction. You have to tell me that you believe in me, God says. You have to believe, not because your parents said so, not because, you know, this or that authority or philosopher or preacher or scholar said. You have to be convinced of this. Other things you can say, no, I defer to the scholar. The scholar told me if you perform, I don't know, if you travel while you're fasting and, and in that case you break your fast or you don't break your fast, right? This is a detail in a ritual, but this, is, this does not constitute your worldview. These are details. So this is where you have to, for yourself, decide on some of those things. The foundations of religion, you have to be convinced of yourself. All of the rest of your actions are going to depend on what you, you established as the main matters of conviction. Once you've achieved those, then you have to decide, how much of an authority do I become? So if you want to be, go all out, that's it. You go all out and you study everything. And you have to reach your own conclusions here. 
You equip yourself with the tools you need. You become the expert and you reach your own conclusion. As a matter of practice and reality, it's very difficult to become an expert in all of this. Are you becoming an expert in history, in theology, in tafsir, in fiqh, and so on and so forth, right? And you can, you can become, that's a, a life devoted to knowledge and Islamic knowledge seeking. Or in some of them you say, I'm going to spend more time here, more effort here, and the rest I defer to the authorities. And no different than any other authority where you are going to find contradictory uh, opinions about it, whether it's fixing your car or your house or your health, right? And so what do you do in those cases? You have to find a way to distinguish between not the intent. <laughs> you can't decide of, on the intent of those people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this is between me and them. They're going to come to me with their hearts. I will deal with that. You have to focus on how scientific, how objective and valid and accurate is the information that they're giving you is. That, that's all you can do in this world. right? So it becomes a purely scientific discussion unless you have evidence that helps you say here there is a lack of sincerity and here there is more of it. That's different. But usually we don't have that. Inshallah this helped. Okay, thank you. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين